Our scripture reading this morning comes from selected verses in Exodus 19 and 20 and then in Hebrews 12. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. And the Lord said to him, Go down. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And then from Hebrews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and a darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. There we go. Uh, good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, and one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and as, uh, Vicky, as Bob said, I think, uh, we continue this morning in this series in the book of Exodus, which we've been 
uh, doing for the uh, at least since the beginning of uh, the year this year. We've come full circle in this story. Uh, the story began with Moses meeting the Lord in the burning bush right here at this very place on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. That's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. And he said there to Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt to bring out my people from their slavery and to bring them back here so that they can meet with me too. And that's Exodus 3, 12. Here in Exodus 19 and 20, God has done what he said. He's rescued his people from Egypt and he's brought them to meet with him here at the mountain at the foot of this, this majestic place to make covenant with him, to give them his law. So this is the Ten Commandments that we didn't read it. This is the place where God gives the people his revealed will for the way that they're supposed to live, and they pledge their loyalty and obedience to him. And so in many ways, everything that we've seen so far in this book has led us to this moment. This is the whole point of what God has been doing with his people. Now, I don't, this is going to sound really self-serving for a pastor to say something like this, but in many ways, if you're a Christian, uh, what, what, this, what the flow of this story teaches us is that if you're here and you're a Christian— Everything God has done in your life is for the sake of you being gathered this morning in this room with the people of God in his presence. And we can, we can get lulled to sleep by the fact that we do this every week, right? Every week, week after week, we come into this room and we gather together and we do this. But in many ways, this meeting this morning, from all eternity, God worked to save you so that you could show up at this meeting this morning. So don't miss it. I told you it was going to sound self-serving, right? Because this is important stuff. What happens on a weekly basis is, is very much like what's happening here with these people. Now, two things by way of introduction before we get into the, the meat of this story. And, uh, and the first is that I want you to see that the exodus was not the goal. Now think about that. The exodus itself was not the goal. Again, verse 12 of chapter 3. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall, shall serve God on this mountain, the Lord says. So the exodus was just the beginning and not the end. The goal was that they would become God's treasure, his kingdom of priests. That is, that they would enjoy a special relationship with the Lord characterized by worship and obedience. If you want to think of it this way, it took 18 chapters to get them here, as we've seen in this book so far. The next 54 chapters in the scriptures happen right here. They spent an entire year camped. On, on this mountain. So they spend three times the amount of time here with the Lord as they did from the time he brought them out of Egypt to getting here. I think that's significant. And so if you're a Christian, you have experienced the supernatural rescue, but that's not, that's just the beginning. It's just the very beginning of what God's doing in your life. The Bible says that God saves us to make us a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, I want to say that again. To make us a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So God's goal for you is your obedience. Right? You with me? His goal for us as we come to his word this morning is not just understanding. If all we walk away with today is understanding and thinking, oh, I know a little bit more than I knew before, we've missed the point. The goal in him bringing us to his word this morning is our obedience because his goal in everything that he does with us is our obedience. But so, Exodus, the Exodus was not the goal. Their worship and obedience was the goal. Exodus was the means to that goal. But the se second thing is, is that the Exodus had to happen first. There's an order. God saves you and then makes you obedient, but you're not saved by being obedient. You gotta make sure you, you, you remember that. So salvation always comes first, then obedience. 
God didn't give them the law while they were still slaves in Egypt. They needed to be rescued first before he could give them the law. And that same Titus passage I quoted a minute ago says that uh, God's grace comes first. Grace brings salvation and then it trains us to become obedient. And that means that God loves us before we love him. He doesn't love us because we obey. We obey because he loves us. And so as we work through this passage together, it's important to remember those two things. The exodus was not the goal. Their worship and their obedience was, but the exodus had to happen first. So salvation came and then the law. And you got to keep those, those things in order, okay, as we look at what happens here. And there really are three things uh, that happens as we go throughout this text. And they're the three points of the outline that I've provided for you. The first thing is that the law is given. Secondly, the fear comes. The people will get really afraid at this experience and then thirdly, because they're so afraid, the mediator has to come down. Or if you would like, I want you to see why obedience is necessary, where the obedience that is necessary comes from, and how obedience can become a way of life for you and for me, because that really is what this passage is about, okay? So let's look at this together. The first thing that happens is that the law is given, and that teaches us why obedience is necessary. Modern people, like you and me, define freedom as merely freedom from, freedom from constraint, freedom from obligation of any kind. But the Bible defines freedom much differently. Freedom in the Bible is freedom for, freedom for worship, freedom for flourishing, freedom for serving God wholeheartedly. And so one of the books that I'm reading uh, to prepare for these sermons put it this way. They said, human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods, Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for them to find delight in serving the new one. The Christian is the person who rejoices to say, along with the Heidelberg Catechism, I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? That's a That's a comfort. The question that prompts that, que that answer in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So God did not rescue the people from Egypt so that they could do their own thing. He rescued them from Egypt so that they could do his thing. To be his treasured possession, look there, verses 5 and 6. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation, those Words describe the special relationship Israel was to enjoy with God and their obedience to him as their true master and Lord. And the New Testament says the same thing about you and me, that God has set us free, Christian, from sin and death, not so that we might serve nobody at all, which amounts to serving ourselves, but so that we might serve God. I mean, if you want a verse, Romans 16, 6, 17 and 18, thanks be to God, listen to this, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the teaching and, have, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And so salvation is being set free from one master to serve another, not just to serve ourselves and not just to do our own thing. That's not freedom. That's actually slavery. Freedom is, is a matter of being not, see, freedom is not a matter of not having to be obligated to anyone. Freedom is a matter of serving the right master. So John Stott pretty famously said, freedom from any restraint is slavery to the epi-desires of our hearts, but slavery to God is real freedom. 
And that's part of the lesson of this text, that there is no such thing as freedom from any kind of restraint. Everybody's serving something. Looking at the big picture in Exodus, the contrast is not between slavery and now freedom, but between slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt and serving the Lord here at the foot of Mount Sinai. Serving nobody is not an option. I mean, we didn't read the Ten Commandments, but we're fairly, most of us, familiar with uh, those words. They're in the middle of these chapters in chapter 20, and they begin with God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, the, of Israel, uh, excuse me, out of Egypt and out of slavery there. And the very first word he gives them is what? Don't make anything else your God but me. Which, of course, means there are only two options for every single one of us in the room. Either you serve God as God or you serve something else as God, but serving no God is not an option. We are made to worship. And if we don't worship and serve the true God, we will find something else to worship and serve, and whatever else that is, it will grind you into the dust. David Foster Wallace, who's a pretty famous writer, 20th century writer and thinker, wasn't really a Christian, but wanted to be, couldn't figure out how to get past a few things, but he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason, he wrote, this is a guy who wasn't a Christian, an outstanding reason for choosing God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So freedom is not being able to do whatever you want. The problem in our lives, if you're here and you're not a Christian, can I just, the problem in our lives is not that we can't do what we want. The problem in our lives is that we want the wrong things. We're slaves to our own desires. And so freedom is the ability to desire the right thing, to have our desires in line with our design. Okay, I wanna say that again. That's freedom. Freedom is when you have your desire in line with your design. A fish is made for water, so it's not free unless it's in the water. It doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter what it wants to do if it's not in the water. We were made for obedience to the Lord. That's the only environment where we can truly be free. So, as Tim Keller said, he said, um, he said freedom is finding the right constraints. That's a helpful parenting tool, by the way. Freedom is finding the right restrictions. It's finding the right law to live by. And that's what God gives the people here. He gives them his law. In the New Testament, James calls it the law of liberty, James 1.25. It's a charter of freedom. So G.K. Chesterton said, um, he said, you know, there are rules in Christianity for sure. And the rules in Christianity are walls, but they're the walls of a playground. (laughs) That's the way he put it. And they're meant to give room for good things to run wild. Those were his words. And so, I, you know, I was, I was going to use another, I want to use an analogy. Can I, I don't, I'm going to put you guys on the spot, but Patrick and Molly have some pretty wild little boys, right? They just have boys that are full of life and run wild. The very first, so they bought a lakefront property and, uh, and there have been alligators in their lake. And so there was concern about the boys just going out and running in the backyard and being, you know, who knows, they end up in the lake and bad things can happen. So the very first thing they did was put a fence up. Why? They put the fence up so that, the, so that they could set the boys free to have a great time in the backyard. Does that make sense? 
The fence, the fence is a wall, but it's the wall of a playground. It's to keep things that could hurt them out and to keep them from getting into places where they could hurt themselves. And that's exactly what the law is here. And so doing whatever you want looks like freedom, but it's actually slavery. Wanting to do what you need the most, having your desires be in line with your design, it looks like slavery at first because it means obedience, but it's actually freedom. And that's why obedience is necessary because it's only in obedience that we'll find the life that we're truly meant to live. But secondly, what happens is, is the law is given here. The second thing that happens is the fear comes out. And that teaches us where obedience comes from, what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. So this is a, a fearful experience for the people. Uh, take the scene in again. God came down on the mountain and there was smoke and lightning and thunder and the ground was shaking. And by the way, the people were too. Verse 16 says they trembled and it was a terrifying experience for them. And then uh, go all the way to the very end of chapter 20, which we read. And it says again that the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. Verse 18. Moses said to them, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, I think that's such an important verse. You really ought to highlight verse 20 of chapter 20 in your Bible. I mean, we really need to spend some time really kind of thinking through that because it's a little confusing, but it really is important. It says that the key to obedience is having the, the fear of God before you, but it has to be the right kind of fear, which is the reason for the double speak there. Do you see the double speak? Moses says, don't be afraid, but be afraid. Do not fear, he says, but have the fear of God before you. So... Don't be afraid, but be afraid. Or if you want to say it another way, don't be afraid to be afraid. Don't fear fear. The people were afraid, but it was the wrong kind of fear. They trembled and they stood far off. But there is another kind of fear, the right kind of fear that causes you not to sin. And that's where obedience come from, comes from. And so what I want you to see is this contrast between uh, what, what we see here from these people. There's this generic fear of God that will that will cause you to fear everything except him. But then there's the genuine fear of the Lord that will make it so that you fear nothing but him. And let's talk about each of those for just a minute as well. So looking at this wrong kind of fear first, this generic fear of God that will cause you to fear everything else but him. And I'll use the word dread here as a synonym. You see these people full of dread. And in the Bible, whenever people come face to face with God like these people do here, it's a terrifying experience because, number one, God is holy, and number two, man is sinful. And uh, we are, we've become quite adept at remaining somewhat unconscious of these truths. They stay buried underneath the surface of our lives like the tectonic plates in the earth's crust. But there are these moments where those two realities crash into one another, and just as those tectonic plates do, when that happens... Uh, we begin, our lives really begin to shake. When, when people experience that, they really begin to shake. And so in this scene, the mountain is shaking and the people are shaking because they're experiencing the reality of God's presence coming up against uh, the truth of their own sin and their own createdness. And so much of the church uh, experience today is, is designed to keep people from an experience like this one. But here's the problem. Every genuine encounter with God is like this. Because he is transcendent and holy. So all of this imagery, uh, verse 16 of chapter 19, the thunders and the lightnings and the thick cloud on the mountain and the very loud trumpet blast, it's all there meant to describe how God is an overwhelming existential reality. And when he shows up, 
the very first thing that happens to a person, to use a phrase from A.W. Tozer, is that they discover the self under their disguises. In other words, when you see God's holiness, what happens is, is it strips away all of the ways that you've been able to hide the reality of your sin, of who you really are, kind of the naked you in front of the all-searching eyes of God. And when that happens to people, they're filled with dread, rightly so. And all they can think about is how to get out of there as quickly as they can, which is what you see from these people, right? Get us out of here, they say. Now Spurgeon preached from this text, and he said that it's a picture of the way God's law deals with our conscience. For the sinner, God is a terrifying reality, as he should be. And if, you, if you're afraid of him in this way, then you'll be afraid of everything. That's the problem. Calvin said that the boldest despisers of God are startled at the rustle of every fallen leaf. And that's always stuck with me, probably because it's been my experience. Listen, if a police officer rolls up behind me, it doesn't matter if I've not done anything wrong. I think, oh, I'm about to get pulled over. What did I do? Seatbelt check. Uh, I probably did something back there. I mean, because... The boldest despite, because we live with this sense of that we're wrong, that we, are, we have violated the rules. But if you live with this kind of existential dread, a guilty conscience that keeps reminding you that you're not right with God, that you're a rebel, then you'll be shaking all the time. Every, the, the rustle of every fallen leaf will startle you. Right? Every time you face criticism... Every time you mess up, every time life gets hard, every time a police officer rolls out behind you, oh, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm so, uh, that's the wrong kind of fear. But it's the only kind of fear that most of us know. But then there's a quickly, there's a right kind of fear too. And here I would, not, I would use the word not dread, but here uh, I would use the word awe as a synonym for fear. And there's a difference between dread and awe. The first experience a person has with God is full of dread. But the problem is you can't stop there. That dread has to be transformed into awe because that's the fear of the Lord that can be before you so that you do not sin, verse 20. So how? How does, how does your fear, how does that, that immediate existential sense of fear in the presence of God make its way past just a sense of dread into awe? Well, I think the answer to that is, is that you have to see that God is both great as he's being revealed here to the people, but he's also good. Or if you want to use the terminology C.S. Lewis used, you know, he said, the reality of God is he's not safe. So the, the, the gospel, the good news of the gospel is not that God is safe. The good news of the gospel is that though, yeah, God is not safe, he's good. And the way I think about this in my own life is, uh, if, not to use another car analogy, if you've ever been driving along in a car and you get distracted, I mean, I'm sure it's not because you're looking at your phone and trying to text or check in on stuff, because none of us would do that, but then you look up and you're about to slam into the back of the car in front of you, and you slam on the brakes as fast as you can, and you stop just short, and you sit there for a minute, and, and what's happening inside of you? Your heart is pounding, and your hands are shaking, even though you're safe. It's all okay. It was close call, but everything's okay. Uh, you know, everybody's safe. You're still terrified at what almost was. That, to me, is a great illustration of, the, of, of what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord. So the psalmist says to God, if you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? I'm done for. I have no chance. But with you, there is forgiveness, he says. Therefore, you are feared. In other words, he had a close call, and he was still shook up. He knew that if God 
counted sin, he was in really, really big trouble, but he also knew that there was forgiveness with the Lord, and so it was a close call. He's safe. The mercy of God is his, but he still can't quite get over the what if. And that's what it means to have the fear of God before you, that you never quite shake the feeling of what almost was, and therefore you never stop being amazed at the mercy that's been shown to you. If you want another illustration, there's a story that's one of my favorites in the Old Testament where uh, the people uh, have the ark of the Lord and they disobey God's command because God commanded very clearly that the ark be carried on poles by the priests and yet they put it on a cart and they kind of really didn't follow the instructions. They were really flippant and dismissive of God's word. And uh, if you remember, they're going along and the cart starts to, falls into a hole and the Ark starts to tip over and is in danger of falling into the dirt. And Uzzah, one of the priests, reaches out and touches it and steadies the ark. And God snaps. I mean, he just drops dead. And, and everybody's scared to death. They don't know what to do. And they put the ark away and they say, okay, that's enough of that. We're not even going to try that anymore. But then they come around to it. And God says, no, you got to bring the ark up. And so this time they take uh, the ark and they do it the right way. They put the poles through the things that are on the, the ark. And they put it on the, the priest's shoulders. And they start out. Uh, after this terrifying experience of God's holiness, of God just coming against sin like that to judge it where, wherever he finds it. And, and it's amazing. It says that the priests took the ark, they put the, put the poles on their shoulders. It says, uh, this is um, 2 Samuel six thirteen. it says they took six steps. And then they set the ark down and just had a worship service. Because <laughs> they, I mean, can you imagine? That, that, I'll just, that, that's this kind of like, Six steps, and they were so overwhelmed. They were so overwhelmed at God's mercy to them that, that, that he would show such kindness to them that they put, they put the ark down and they just began to worship. That's, that's the awe. I mean, isn't it, it's an, it isn't an awful thing that we get to gather in this room this morning and, and be in his presence? See, the truth of the gospel is that we're not safe with him. I'm sorry, I said that the complete opposite wrong way. The truth of the gospel is that we're safe with him, but he is not safe. God is great and he's good, and when you know that, you will fear him, but with the right kind of fear, with joyful awe and wonder. And if you fear him like that, here's the good news. You won't be afraid of anything else. He will become the most important, most real, most solid thing in your life, and that is the fear when he is the biggest reality in your heart, that's the fear that can make you not sin. But lastly, we need to finish up. So then where do we see his goodness? Because we, it's obvious where his greatness is in this text. But where do we see God's goodness so that we can fear him the right way? And we see it in the mediator coming down, which teaches us how obedience can become a way of life for us. Now, we didn't read the Hebrews 12 passage, but Hebrews 12 is printed for you in your worship folder. If you flip it over to the other side and what... what um, what the writer of Hebrews says there is that we as Christians, it's amazing, we don't come to Mount Sinai like these people did. It's a remarkable statement there in Hebrews 12. Uh, let's, let's look at it together. Do you mind doing that? Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpet and the voice of the words who made the hearers beg for no further messages to be spoken to them. It's an obvious reference to this text here in Exodus 19 and 20, see? 
Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. And so Hebrews 12 says that we, as Christians, we don't come to Mount Sinai like these people did. We come to Mount Zion instead. In other words, our whole experience of God has changed from all of the terrors described here in these chapters to what the Hebrews writer describes there. And in the Bible, Mount Sinai is a symbol for performance-based religion. It's, it's used that way in Galatians 4 also. So when it says that we don't go to Sinai, it means that the gospel good news for you and me this morning is that if you put your faith in Jesus, your relationship with God is no longer based on your performance. So the solution to the problem of God's holiness and your sin bumping up against one another is not your good works in the place of your sin. It's the mediator. And you see it there in Hebrews 12, 24. You see that word, that the way to come, the way to the right kind of fear is to stop coming to Sinai, to stop trying to relate to God on the basis of your works and start coming instead to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new and better covenant. The Hebrews writer is exegeting this, this Exodus passage. And look at what happens. It's such an overwhelming experience for the people that towards the end of chapter 20, they were so afraid. <clears throat> they stood afar off, it says, and they said to Moses, this is verses 18 and 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. <laughs> like we, we, he, we are overwhelmed by all of the stuff happening here. Would you just please go for us? And be with God and come and tell us what he says. But we can't be in his presence any longer. And they stood afar off. And Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So the people didn't want to deal with him directly. They wanted Moses to be the go-between. And that's a mediator. A mediator was, uh, was the go-between between, you know, the people and the Lord. Moses was the mediator for these people. But Jesus is the mediator for you and I of a better and new covenant, Hebrews says. Which means this. And here's the gospel good news for us this morning. That... Uh, because Jesus is the mediator, you and I, we have to go through Jesus to get to God. But here's the other thing. God has to go through Jesus to get to you and I. You have to go through Jesus to get to God. Annie Dillard wrote, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The church's our children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. He said, it is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may someday wake and take offense or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. God is not safe. Spurgeon said, be sensible of your sin and you will no more attempt to approach an absolute deity than you would to walk into a volcano's mouth. That's what we've done this morning. We've come into this room as God's people gathered in his presence. We've walked into a volcano's mouth. God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12 says, and if you try to come to him on your own merits, you will be consumed. Do you see the warnings in Exodus 20 and 19? Don't come up. You can't come up. The people cannot come up on Mount Sinai, 19.23 says. Instead, Moses came down. We need a mediator. 
And the Hebrews passage says that there is one greater than Moses who has come down. At the end of his life, Jesus Christ climbed a mountain like this mountain in Exodus 20, and he hung there on the cross. And the darkness and the dread came down, and with his dying breath, the earth shook because he hung there, bearing the curse of the law, and God in his holiness and wrath had come down to judge him, him instead of us. Just like Moses, Jesus went into the thick darkness where God was, and he was consumed. And that changes our experience of God. It doesn't take away fear. It becomes the right kind of fear, not dread. But notice at the end of that Hebrews 12 passage, even though we've come to festal, the festal gathering of angels, it's still with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. And yet we're told in the Bible to come boldly. They are told you can't come up. We're told, no, come boldly. Because we go through Jesus. But the other thing is, is though we have to go through Jesus to get to God, God has to go through Jesus to get to us. And so the gospel doesn't make God safe. It makes me safe because now God has to go through Jesus to get to me. So no more Sinai experience for, for me and you. Uh, the John Newton hymn we sang at the beginning of the service put it this way. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Well, what does that mean? It means that we're safe. We are not under any threat because of our sins. God has dealt with our sin in Jesus. And so if your faith is in him, if you're in Christ, then all Jesus is, all Jesus has, all that Jesus has done, it's all yours by faith. Now, just to close with another uh, little bit of uh, John Newton's lyrics. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Have you ever thought about those words? It really struck me this week. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." So the first thing grace does is to teach your heart to fear. Have you ever had a Sinai experience? That's the first part of becoming a Christian. Have you ever shaken at the sense of, of his holiness in your sin? Has the self under all your disguises ever been laid bare? If not... If not, then that's the very first experience of becoming a Christian. But if you're, you know, if you're not a Christian, God should be a terrifying reality to you. If he's not, that means that something is desperately wrong. If he is, if you're here and you say, I don't, I don't know if I believe, but God is a terrifying truth. God is a terrifying reality in me. That's good news because it means grace is already at work in your life. But that same grace that taught your heart to fear will not leave you there. Christian, you should not feel dread. Because of the work of Jesus on your behalf, your dread should be awe. It should become reverence. And you will love and you will sing and you will wonder at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the right kind of fear. And that right kind of fear is the power for obedience. And a life of obedience is a life of freedom and joy. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to this table now, we pray that you would so work to consecrate us as these people were, as your people, that you make us your treasure possession, your kingdom of priests, your holy nation, as we gather now around your table to eat and drink from what you've given to us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so receive these words of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.